0: Right, uh, thank you all for coming on what is typically another dreadful spring day in London. Um, I think we're in for a trip tonight. Uh, Nicole Watson is going to speak on the Kurdish Spring, state society relations and dissent in the Kurdistan region of Iraq. I'm uh, Toby Dodge, I, speak, I teach international relations in the international relations department. More importantly, our speaker is from uh, San Francisco State University, who's been working on these issues for more than 10 years and is uh, the author of Activist in Office, Kurdish Politics, and protests in Turkey. You'll we'll speak for about 45 minutes okay. and then we'll take questions afterwards. Thank
1: you. I think I'll stand up. Uh, can everybody hear me? Is that yes? No? Yes? Yes. Okay. Uh, just first of all, I wanted to thank uh, the Middle East Center here and uh, Bob Lowe for inviting me, and also Dania Akkad for all her assistance in actually getting me here across the channel, and also Professor Dodge for introducing me. Um, I was really excited to be coming today. I've been living in Paris this last year, and uh, I was so excited that I made the unforgivable error of imagining that because it was sunny in Paris, it would be sunny in London, and I forgot my umbrella. And so now that I've been sufficiently chastened into remembering that whatever the French do, the English will do differently, Um, I think I'm I'm sober enough to to get started here today. And uh, thank you all for coming and for for braving the weather. Um, So I actually called this talk in the end Suleimania Spring, State Society Relations and Dissent in the Kurdistan Region of Iraq. Um, Because as you'll see, one point that I want to make in my talk today is that what we see happening in one part of the Kurdistan region is not necessarily generalizable to all parts of the Kurdistan region, or to Kurdistan as a whole. Um, And between February February 17th and uh, the 18th of April 2011, uh, tens of thousands of Kurds in the Kurdistan region of Iraq staged their own version of the Arab Spring. And thousands of activists in Sulaymaniyah held mass daily protests for two straight months, for 62 days, I think it was, calling for government reform and an end to corruption, among other things. And other demonstrations against the KRG, the Kurdistan Regional Government, took place in Halabja, in Rania, in Chamchamal, and in other cities uh, around the Kurdistan <coughs> region. And in clashes between protesters and security forces, 10 people died and hundreds were injured before the KRG forcibly ended the protests in mid-April. And of course, um, as we all know, uh, protests and demonstrations uh, against regimes were of course hardly unusual in the the first half of 2011. Um, But the existence of this sort of movement in the Kurdistan region of Iraq is striking um, because the dominant political narrative is one that uses the banner of Kurdish persecution at the hands of central states to justify the need for self-rule and autonomy. Um, if not independence. And this narrative of Kurdish suffering has traditionally been one that doesn't allow for the possibility of internal persecution um, by Kurds against Kurds. And in addition, state-society relations in uh, under the KRG can be described briefly as clientelistic and quite hierarchical. So KRG governance is distributed party-state governance um, with the two major parties controlling access to the resources of um, almost every sphere of political and economic life. So for me, um, there were two main questions that really came out of these events and these protests. Um, The first one is how do we explain the size and the durability of the protests, these were the largest and longest ever in the history of um, the Kurdistan region, anywhere from um, we had thousands of people some days up to 20, 30, 40,000, some observers estimated more. I, I don't know exactly how accurate those counts were, but at least 30,000 some days. Um, we also see demands shifting from the service-oriented, localized demands of past protests to national demands for systemic reform. So I think we can see this Suleimania spring as a kind of turning point in state society relations in the region and an indicator that the nationalist underpinnings of KRG rule (coughs) were no longer sufficient to contain the internal tensions and Kurd-on-Kurd grievances that had been surfacing in the region at least uh, since 2006. The second question I have, which uh, I'm only going to deal with really at the very end of my talk and probably frustratingly briefly, is how do we explain the differential geography of protest in which cities in Sulayamania governorate rose up, but other provinces, um, notably Dohuk and Erbil in particular, where the capital is located, did not. So protesters in Sulayamania knew that Erbil was key. They knew that without Erbil, the protests could not translate into meaningful political transformation or give them sufficient leverage against the KRG to challenge it. But airbill did not rise, and the protests were indeed silenced in mid-April, um, and dismiss- dismissed by some commentators um, and others as kind of typical Suleimani misbehavior. So my answers to these questions are based on field work that I've been conducting in the Kurdistan region of Iraq on and off since 2009, um, as well as inspired by theorists such as Pierre Bourdieu and Charles Tilley and others. And what I'd like to suggest is that this case provides us a kind of insight into um, the differential value of symbolic capital in protest. And that's a kind of big academic phrase. And another way of putting that is the conditions (coughs) under which symbolic resources can empower activists and provide them with additional resources to challenge authorities vastly more powerful than themselves. And symbolic capital can be understood as cultural categorizations and social perceptions that bestow meanings such as prestige or honor or recognition. And in Suleimania governorate last year, the symbolic capital, capital afforded by the democracy legitimacy discourse of the Arab Spring resonated profoundly and translated into an increased capacity to mobilize. Um, why? Um, I answer this is because in the Suleimania governorate we see a particular configuration of state society relations in transition. In contrast, the illegitimacy, or the legitimacy democracy discourse of the Arab Spring did not afford activists much traction in Erbil or Dohuk, where the state society dynamic is profoundly different, and the symbolic legitimation provided by the nationalist struggle still resonates with broad portions of the population. So we can see the Suleimania Spring as part of a kind of growing but geographically differentiated effort to redefine Kurdish notions of what constitutes the national Kurdish interest and shift the basis of government authority in the KRG from a kind of national charismatic model to a more institutionalized form of legal rational authority to draw, of course, from um, Weber's classic terms. So my plan for today is um, I'd first like to recap the events very generally, uh, or very briefly, of February through April and then to discuss why and how the protests developed and were sustained. And then at the very end of my talk, I'm gonna turn briefly to this question of the absence of protest outside Suleimaniya. Um, so let me see here, let's give you, these were a few more photographs. Um, one of the things about writing about and thinking about protests is, is of course always a lot of dramatic uh, coverage and dramatic images to share. So these were all scenes from Suleimania. And this is a map that shows some of the different uh, places that I mentioned in the course of the talk. So let me get to this slide. I was very proud of myself for figuring out how to capture this map from from Google Maps. So on February 17th, a little-known group uh, called the Network to Protect Rights and Demands of the People held a legal gathering, they had received permission, in Suleimania's main square that was announced as a demonstration of solidarity with the peoples of Egypt and Tunisia. Um, if we survey the region at the time, um, President Mubarak, of course, had resigned in Egypt. Um, on February 11th, President Ben Ali in Tunisia had resigned the 14th or been forced out the 14th of January. Um, also in that same week of the 16th and 17th of February, there were protests and deaths in Bahrain, in Libya. Um, there were also protests beginning in Syria. And in the last days of January, the Goran party or movement, um, the main opposition party in the Kurdistan National Assembly very much inspired by and taking advantage of events in the Arab world, had issued a seven point program for reform that called on the KRG government to resign, accusing it of corruption and partisanship. And this had produced an extremely tense standoff and set of debates within the KRG and the Kurdistan region. And at this demonstration, some speakers went further than proclaiming their support for Tunisia and Egypt and and the peoples there, and they raised a number of criticisms of the KRG. And the meeting itself, the formal protest ended without incident, but a group of protesters afterwards peeled off from the square and um, marched to the KDP headquarters on Solemn Street. So you can see here on the slide here, this is the square where they began and which ended up being the center of the protest and they marched down here to the KDP headquarters which is kind of a 15 or 20 minute walk depending on how quickly you're walking. And um, people started breaking windows and throwing stones and threatening the building. The security forces who were there initially were really unsure about how to respond and eventually ended up shooting over the heads and out at the protesters. And they killed a 14-year-old boy and injured another 13-year-old who died a few days later. And so the Sulaymaniyah Spring ended up with its first martyrs. And um, these are some scenes from that. And then these are the, the boys who who died. So after several days of street clashes and attacks um, on the opposition media, um, reporting on them, a number of civil society leaders and associations decided that they needed to intervene and to begin to manage the physical spaces of, of the square, to impose some sort of protest discipline on the students who were clashing with the security forces and the crowds, and to try and articulate activist grievances into a more unified set of political demands. So by February 22nd then, so this is like a five, six day period, we see a transition from the kind of generalized street protests um, to the construction of a more organized movement. Um, Let me see if I can just go here for a moment. Um, And so at that point, um, what happens is the activists (coughs) built a stage and erected a podium in Sahara Square, um, in the center of Suleimania and they renamed it Maidani Azadi or Freedom Square after Tahrir Square in Egypt. Um, we see the formation of a loose association to serve as a spokes organization for the protests. Um, we see some effort at physically patrolling the square by a group that called itself the White Group, which was modeled on the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, um, but on, of course, a much smaller scale to ensure that protests remain nonviolent and to keep security forces and protesters from clashing with each other. Um, They also organized an afternoon protest schedule from 2 to 5 every day, and there were a lot of jokes going around Suleimania with people saying that nobody ever showed up for work as punctually as people showed up for the protests. Um, And uh, the issuance of a specific set of demands that revolved around calls for government transparency and accountability and an end to the party state... Um, Also starting on February 19th, protests began um, and continued in Rania, in Darbandakan, in Halabja. They started and then they stopped after a policeman was killed and then they started again. And um, other cities and towns in the region. KRG authorities responded to the protests with a number of different um, ambivalent responses. So there was repression, there was alarm, there were offers of concessions, offers of dialogue. Um, the Kurdistan National Assembly held a number of emergency meetings, and in early March, um, then-Prime Minister Baram Salih survived a vote of no confidence that was brought against him by the opposition parties concerning his handling of the protests. Um, KRG President Barzani initially referred to the protesters as, quote-unquote, enemies trying to create sedition and chaos, but by April was offering um, more conciliatory statements that reiterated protest demands to, to, to fight corruption and redress wrongs. And in mid-March, both Ambar Amsali and President Talbani issued apologies for the shortcomings and problems of the KRG and the deaths of the protesters, and vowed to to try and solve some of these problems. At the same time as you have this kind of eventually conciliatory dialogue coming from the top leaders, security forces on the streets, and there were different security forces involved at different times, used tear gas and other anti-riot techniques on protesters. Um, Hundreds of activists were detained. At least one opposition TV station was burned to the ground. Um, Journalists and civil society leaders were harassed and received um, sometimes hundreds of threatening uh, notes, usually on their cell phones. And uh, party-affiliated militias roamed the streets, often um, ending up in fights with protesters. In March, masked men armed with firearms and clubs attacked protesters and um, set fire to the tents that had been set up in the square. And on April 18th, security forces arrived en masse in Suleimania to break up the gathering in Square by force. And at that point, the protests ended, <coughs> and on the 19th, the security committee of <coughs> Suleimania province banned all unlicensed demonstrations. So the basic building blocks of this narrative um, resemble in some ways what we saw in countries such as Tunisia and Egypt. So we see individuals or martyrs who serve as initial catalysts and ongoing symbols for mobilization. We see face-to-face challenges to regimes on the street. We see youth communication via Facebook, cell phones, and other forms of social media. We see popular but largely nonviolent street protest and a kind of popular reclamation of public unofficialized spaces. Um, and we see the involvement of associations and NGOs who serve as mobilizing structures in the language of social movement theory for action. And we see an ambiguous regime response that vacillates between repression and, and promises of reform. On the other hand, there are, of course, also a number of very important differences between the case of the KRG and countries such as Tunisia and Egypt. And this list of differences is very long, but includes, um, first of all, of course, the fact that the Kurdistan region is not a fully independent state, but is a region in a federal government structure. Um, so its autonomous status is, of course, uh, fragile and contested. Second, there's the fact that the current KRG was relatively fairly and freely elected in 2009. And this, of course, distinguishes the KRG leadership very much so from um, Mubarak or Ben Ali or other leaders in North Africa. Third, although the duopoly of KDP and PUK does use repression and force against dissidents, the depth and degree of systematized violence against its citizens in no way resembles the police state of Tunisia or the regime in Egypt. Fourth, another fourth difference is arguably the powers of patronage in the hands of ruling elites in the Kurdistan region quite exceed those of Mubarak and Ben Ali, if only for the fact that the population is so different. So you have, what, almost 4 million people in the Kurdistan region versus 80 million in Egypt. Um, and then also thinking about the protests themselves, in both Tunisia and Egypt, unions and syndicates were very important players in mobilizing the masses, and they really barely exist in the, the economy or the petroeconomy of Kurdistan. So given all this, I don't think we can really take uh, these protests in Sulaymaniyah as a given or as something that would just naturally occur. So this brings me back to my question of how we can explain this. Um, so as I've suggested, the symbolic capital afforded by the democracy legitimacy discourse of the Arab Spring resonated in the Sulaymaniyah province um, in the governorate because of the changing nature of state-society relations there. And there are really three critical variables here that I want to discuss in turn. Um, The first is something we can think of as a kind of crisis of legitimacy in the Suleimaniya governorate, um, largely linked to governance and service-related grievances. And and these are grievances both against the KRG generally and particularly against the PUK. Um, So the list of complaints that people will make against the PUK and the KRG um, is well known and uh, organizations like Amnesty International and like Rights Watch have documented these and there's been a lot of dialogue about them actually between KRG officials and these organizations. But people criticize um, the regime for cronyism, for very high levels of corruption, for the party state, for legal persecution and detention, the occasional murder of dissident journalists. Um, there are complaints that there's torture at the hands of the Assayish security forces There's discussion about the weakness of the judiciary, um, very little business accountability, lack of budget transparency as being a huge issue, um, and huge numbers of unfinished projects, construction projects, for instance, due to a lack of business accountability. Um, People also complain about overly centralized rule with little real power at the local level, despite this, um, this larger discourse of democracy. People also are concerned about a lack of institutional autonomy um, and the influence of the two major parties in, in many, many different facets of business, educational, <coughs> and political decision making. Um, one glaring example of this sort of concern and problem surfaced last month um, with the arrest and then death of the former mayor of Sulaymaniyah, um, Zana Hafsali, who was accused of corruption, imprisoned in the Asayish prison there in Suleimania, and died under uncertain circumstances. So what we can think of this as, then, is a kind of breakdown in the patron-client pact. um, Because support for the major parties has not delivered the expected or the promised benefits. And because of growing perceptions of the inequitable sharing of wealth and opportunity. And within the relative stability of the KRG, um, the threat of external intervention no longer provides sufficient legitimation for many people there, um, sufficient to mask these problems. So in Suleimania, these grievances have been evidenced in several main ways. Um, First of all, with a sporadic but important history of street protest um, and the growth of a critical opposition media. I'm going to talk about both of those in just a moment. And then thirdly, at the ballot box, of course, with support for the Goran Party, or movement for change, which was formed in 2009 through an internal schism within the PUK leadership. And it rapidly became the KRG's first serious opposition movement. And in the 2009 elections, um, Goran, uh, for, the, for the KNA, the Kurdistan National Assembly, Goran won 25 seats um, out of 111. So this is almost a quarter of the seats. And its support is particularly strong in the Suleimania governorate. Um, it won about 303,000 votes there in the 2009 election, compared to the Kurdistani lists, um, 260,000. So these are some of the grievances that people will articulate against the regime and against the PUK. Nonetheless, as um, students of social movements often will discuss, grievances and crises in and of themselves do not produce mobilization and movements. Um, And this brings me to the second factor that I want to talk about that I think is key to explaining the the size and durability of the protests. Um, The second factor is what I think of as a structural framework for mobilization. Um, so we now have in the Suleyemaniya governorate a kind of structural framework um, that allows for protest to exist. So you can also think of it as a kind of increased mobilization capacity. Um, the first reason for this of course is Goran. is the Goran party which has provided the opposition movement with very significant new material, human and ideological resources. Because founder Noshiwa Mustafa was a key figure in the national struggle and close to Taliban and within the PUK for so long, he bestows a kind of nationalist credentials on the movement as well as considerable charismatic authority. Um, Gorn's party offices in some ways resemble a huge think tank or NGO, um, I've never seen party offices like these actually, with research institutes, election bureaus, sociologists and all of these sorts of people who are working closely with international and local NGOs as well. Um, so, Goran's significant presence in the KNA, KNA the electoral threat it poses the PUK, and its willingness to join forces with other smaller opposition parties have all translated into increased visibility and leverage. Um, a second uh, contributing factor for this increased capacity to mobilize is that beginning in 2000, but especially in the last eight years or so, we see the growth of an opposition and an uh, independent media that has seriously challenged the ruling parties for control over historic memory and the ability to define the national interest. And I just have a, this is Awane here. Um, Newspapers such as Halati, um, which began publication in 2000. Levine Magazine, which was begun in 2002. Awane, which you can see here on the slide. Um, and then a number of satellite television stations, um, and especially the satellite news station KNN that was launched by Goron. Um, all of these have broken a number of taboos, especially concerning the status and the person of Talibani and Barzani themselves. And they've played a really important role in creating a new kind of information politics with the publicization of protesters' demands and grievances. Um, also, you could say here that important was the growth of um, new technology and new media. And Iraq as a whole has one, I think, one of the lar- lowest pen- internet penetration rates in the region, something like two or three percent, compared to, say, Egypt's 21 percent or Tunisia's 30 percent. Um, but especially in the Kurdistan region, over the last couple of years, more and more students, in particular, have had good access to high-quality and affordable internet, um, and they're on Facebook constantly. and uh, and also, of course, you have very good cell phone penetration in the region, so this has played a role in terms of the, the media growth as well. Um, the third aspect of this uh, capacity to mobilize that I want to talk about is the expansion, develop of civic, development of civic and associational mm-hmm. protest networks after 2006. Um, so, in general, so-called non-governmental organizations. Um, or civil society organizations are quite compromised or have been traditionally quite compromised in Iraqi Kurdistan. Um, there was a lot of money poured into <coughs> civil society development after 2003, but very little of this went to fully independent associations. And most so-called NGOs in the Kurdistan region are in fact closely affiliated with one of the two major parties. And they're registered, and they receive money from the KRG, um, which makes them vulnerable. Um, This, for me, was very striking having worked in Turkey and in places like Diyarbakir, where there's a very, very dense network of long-standing NGOs and organizations that have a lot of resources and a lot of stability, and it was really quite different in the Kursan region of Iraq. So it's really only after 2006 that we see the development and mobilization of a small but important group of associations and NGOs who operated more independently of the parties, and they began to try and challenge the KRG although a number of them also later became uh, affiliated with Goran in different ways. Most of these new associations uh, were based in Suleimania, and many of them formed in the wake of the 2006 Halabja protest, when protesters there destroyed the Halabja Monu- Martyrs Monument and raised a number of public criticisms of the KRG. And at that point, NGOs and the new opposition media both played a role after the destruction of the monument in publicizing protesters' demands and in helping get those detained in, a, in relation, those who have been detained after that protest, um, they helped them get free. And after that, through those experiences, they created a federation of civil society NGOs, which was an umbrella group of about 14 active NGOs. So out of this experience in 2006 um, came a new level of associational cooperation and coordination and a kind of expanded political space with more aggressive and more independent non-governmental actors. So all of this, um, Goran, the new media, these new NGOs meant there was now an expanded capacity to mobilize and to challenge established discourse and offer a new kind of sense of Kurdish national interest. So at this point then we have these grievances, we have this capacity to mobilize, and then the third kind of explanation I wanna offer for the size and durability of the protests really revolves around human agency or the decisions that the activists and the organizers of the protests took themselves that contributed to the building and sustaining of the movement. Um, The first is that we see a deliberate effort to keep the protests horizontally organized and to maintain maximum individual and associational involvement. And overall, I came to think of the movement in Suleimania as really consisting of kind of networked and fluid clusters of overlapping groups and associations rather than very deeply rooted or institutionalized groups with clearly clearly demarcated identities. You see these people floating from group to group and groups form for a specific purpose and then they disband and it's very fluid. Um, And in this case, there was no single dominant organization that was uh, really running the protests. It was much more chaotic than that. Um, The movement was very much influenced by uh, the two major opposition parties, by Goran um, and by the Kurdistan Islamic Union in particular and some of the other smaller parties, but neither fully controlled it and their support waxed and waned depending on the moment. So rather than a kind of top-down or um, hierarchy or centralized management system, there were a lot of different actors from different social sectors. Um, the main association, as I have here, for uh, representing and then seeking to coordinate the Suleymaniya protests was this group that came to call itself the Ad Hoc Committee of Maidani al-Zadi. Um, they didn't organize the protests. Um, they really sought to articulate and channel demands and serve as an interlocutor between the street and the KRG. They didn't exist prior to the protests either. Um, and they disbanded afterwards. But they were formed by a, a, a small group of activists in the first days of the protest. These were civil society people who had been on the street, were seeing the violence, realized that they needed to kind of try and, and, and figure out how to organize this, and organized this ad hoc committee. Um, originally, it was there was anywhere from 50 to 100 people who were all trying to decide what should be done and how it should be done, and eventually they organized it with a kind of inner circle and then outer circles. Um, And there was a very deliberate rejection of traditional party hierarchies that, um, and this was very much in keeping with the ethos of the Arab Spring, and then later the Occupy movements around the world as well. And I have a quote here um, from Nasek Khadir. She was a spokeswoman for the Ad Hoc Committee. Um, She's a Canadian-trained sociologist, and she'd worked in uh, healthcare and also civil society. And she said, "She said we don't represent the people, we're here to make sure the people are a little more organized, that's all. It's the street that moves us, it's not us that moves the street. And she says we're not like a party just telling people what to do. Um, so this is one, uh, I have here, let me just go back to my graphic here. I'm gonna talk about some of these different <coughs> groups here. So this was one, this is how they were, uh, this is the organization that was trying to articulate the demands. And keep a, a grip on the whole thing. Um, a second characteristic of the protests was uh, their demographic and political diversity. Um, we see, first of all, as I've indicated, this new civil society opposition, different working groups and networks that were formed after 2006. So there were um, journalists and lawyers, academics, have cure and public intellectuals, doctors. They had been mobilized, some of them the year before, um, for other sorts of protests to do with um, new laws that were being passed by the KRG. um, And then they became involved later. And so we have some of these different groups. We also see students, um, huge numbers of students involved in these protests, especially from Sulaymaniyah University, um, and from some of the high schools as well. And they were really important for mobilization, and again working um, through social media a lot of the time. Um, and they formed a number of Facebook groups, and Shaqam uh, over here was a group that was somewhat modeled on the Muslim Brotherhood, was also associated with the Kurdistan Islamic Union, and they tried to, um, to pick up after the protesters in the square and do that sort of thing, and they also communicated on Facebook, and there were some of these other groups, like Youth of Suleimania. we are all Rizwan Ali, which was one of the, the young men who was killed. Again, these are groups you can see the influence of Egypt here. Um, We also see, uh, oh, and I have here, this is a statement from uh, one of their Facebook pages. Um, We also see the involvement of the religious opposition, so mullahs and religious leaders, um, again, as well as, as I said, the involvement of the Kurdistan Islamic Union, which has close ties to the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt. Um, This is one of the first times in this set of protests that the secular, what you might call it, the secular civil society opposition worked closely with the Islamic opposition on the street. Um, And you saw the involvement in Suleimania of not just young men, but also older people. And you saw the involvement of women um, at different points in times. I have some slides here. This was a group of students from the American University of Iraq, Suleimania, who came to show their support. And this was uh, on a Friday prayer protest that was held. And there were some pictures. And these were some of the women who were praying there at the square. And um, these were some from Halabj, some women. So I have some different pictures here. Let's go back to here. So in general, then, we can see that this kind of diversity and breadth of societal representation, especially um, religious leaders and women, helped refute accusations that protesters were just a bunch of troublemakers, um, or hooligans, or, or you know, any of these sorts of uh, categorizations. Um, one point I did want to make was this, this kind of horizontal organization was not necessarily replicated in some of the protests we saw in other places. Um, and here's for some of my pictures from from Halabji here. In Rania, for instance, uh, when I went up there, it was very clear that the protest organization was um, very closely, uh, clearly embedded within okay. Goran and the kind of old guard who had defected from the PUK. And so the, the movement there was much more closely and directly affiliated with Goran. And this was much less the case in Sulaymaniyah and much less the case in Halabja. Um, the, the civil society and organizational networks between Halabja and Sulaymaniyah are actually very close. Um, and these were some photos taken by a journalist and uh, he was initially an, a, a spokesperson for the protesters in, in Halabja and then he he retreated to doing more, st- more journalism. Those were some pictures he had taken. Um, a third characteristic of these protests that was important was the adoption of nonviolent repertoires of contention that allowed for mass participation in sustained protest. And at this point, I think these sorts of repertoires are ones we're now very familiar with, having seen uh, what happened around the Arab world. Um, last year. So there was a free microphone, there were speeches given every day, there were marches, um, there were tents initially, there was the reoccupation of a nationalized space, a Square in the middle of Suleimaniya has a great deal of symbolic import. It's been a center of Kurdish resistance um, really since the beginning of the 20th century. Um, there were a number of Kurdish activists who were executed there under the bath. Um, and I have another quote from Nasir kadir here somewhere. I'm not sure where I put it, but Um, and she said that, if I can find it, the square is the place that has brought together all people from all movements in Kurdistan throughout modern history. You also see for these repertoires, these um, Friday prayer protests um, that were held in the square for the first time about 10 days after the protest started, and these were extremely well organized, well disciplined, and often very, very large. And then a fourth characteristic of the protests that I, this is the last one I want to talk about here, um, that I think helped create a new sense of inclusion and broad-based social participation was the demands that protesters made and the way they framed them. And it's really here that we see a kind of definition of, a new definition of Kurdish national interest and a clear and national message that's developed to represent or try to represent the so-called voice of the street. And these demands, as I said, really constituted a significant shift from earlier street demonstrations that had been very much localized and very much about service provision and complaints about things like electricity and lack of asphalt. Um, And again, I have a a quote here I wanted to show you. Um, This is from Dr. Muthana Nadir, who's a member of the Leadership Council of um, the KIU. And he said, our leaders should realize that this moment is like 1990 or 91. This is a historic moment in this area. Systems are being created and destroyed. Now the awareness of the people is not about services. It's about reforming the system, about how we can separate the parties from the government and the ministries and the military. It's about how we can bring about change peacefully. These are our main demands. And he says, now the leaders know they can't just make a small change and expect people to be satisfied. So I think again this is very interesting for capturing the influence of the discourse of the Arab Spring and showing then how it's being recapitulated in the Kurdish setting. Um, The demands of the protesters is articulated both in um, my demands. Some of my demands, Uh, in public speeches and in the many documents released by the ad hoc committee called for the resignation of the President and the Prime Minister and the Cabinet. They called for reforms to attack corruption, a new constitution, and in particular mechanisms to disentangle party and state. And these demands were situated in several um, master frames, if we can put it that way, that resonated um, or they intended them to resonate with Kurdish national, regional, and international communities. They used a democracy frame or what you might more accurately call a kick out the leaders and fix the system discourse that came from the Arab Spring. This was combined with a language of good governance um, that was derived in part from Goran and in part from individuals who had done work um, with international NGOs. Um, We also see a nationalist frame that framed dissent and the protesters as patriotic and this was done through frequent references to Kurdistan, the use of the Kurdish flag, um, huge protests around Nouros itself, and and many references to the nationalist struggle. And then we also of course see an Islamic frame, and the mullahs involved with the protests um, used religious imagery sometimes to frame their grievances, um, although this could be risky, uh, there were uh, calls on protesters for a kind of jihad. Um, this, of course, was was very controversial and uh, provoked the arrests of some. It in early April. Um, many other phrases for the, from the Quran and Friday uh, were used during the Friday prayers as well. I think I have this one here. This one was "jihad and democracy in Kurdistan." This is a magazine cover. Um, And cumulatively, these demands and frames sent the message that it was both a patriotic and a religious duty to support the protesters. And there was really then an effort to try and um, reconfigure the nationalist logic of the KDP and the PUK. I think this brings me to my conclusions. by way of a conclusion then, I want to touch briefly on the question of Erbil and then offer some general thoughts on the impacts and implications of the protest. Um, so clearly if protests had spread to Erbil and other provinces as activists hoped they would, um, protesters would have had more leverage to use against the KRG and against authorities. Um, and so if This question of why Erbil didn't rise, why you don't see mass protests in Erbil is a really interesting one. And it comes up over and over again when you look at histories of street protests in the Kurdistan region. It wasn't due to lack of effort. Um, I actually interviewed a number of people who had been involved in trying to organize protests in Erbil and Haler. Um, Some of them were with the religious opposition, some of them were with more civil society organizations. There were a number of um, demonstrations that were planned. Most of them never really got off the ground. Um, Very briefly, some of the different ideas I'm thinking about here and playing with uh, as to why this was. First of all, I think we can see that the efforts to mobilize in Erbil were more fragmented. So there's a little bit more competition for movement control between religious elites and civic activists. This is one of the things I'm thinking about here. Um, activists will also say there's a higher level of repression um, in uh, in Erbil. Um, some people said to me, well, you know, in, in Sulaymania, they had protests, and then they got shut down. We got shut down before we even got the protests off the ground. Um, and it is, uh, it's commonly noted that uh, often Suleimania tends to it, it, it attracts more of the opposition press, it tends to be known as a cultural and um, a kind of movement capital. Um, but particularly what I'm interested in with Erbil is thinking about um, why we have a kind of lack of resonance of this imagery of the Arab Spring there and thinking about how, what this can tell us about the differential nature of state society and relations in Erbil um, versus in Suleimaniya. And I think we see, what again, we see differences in party-state relations in the nature of KDP and uh, of the KDP and KDP governance versus PUK governance. We see differences in um, Barzani's relationship with ordinary people. Um, people will often say that Erbil has better governance, that it's just, it's, you know, it's, it's just better run. And the, the Suleimaniites will point to Erbil and they say, look at all the things they've done there and why doesn't it happen, you know, where we are. Um, people also <coughs> talk about the more of a, a diverse social structure and the diversity of different groups in, in Erbil. Again, I'm not sure how much traction this explanation has. So these are all, I think, interesting points for us to contemplate, and I don't, haven't arrived at any conclusions with them, but um, it's something I'd like to, to think about quite a bit more. Um, since Erbil did not rise, then, if we're thinking about impacts, how do we assess the meaning and the outcome of these protests, if any? and uh, um, one problem I can see is this problem of solutions and goals. So movements are usually most effective when there's a short and clear causal chain to resolve problems. So for instance, remove the dictator and the system will be better is a very short, clear, it's a a short and clear message with it's a short causal chain. Um, In this case, one problem that activists face was the fact that although almost all agree on the need for wholesale systemic reform, um, Barzani and Taliban continue to enjoy more popular support among ordinary people, um, in some cases by far, than people such as Mubarak or Ben Ali. So, although protesters called for their resignation, this was ultimately a movement not about dethroning dictators, um, but about transforming the distribution of power and resources in Kurdistan. Um, And decentralized street movements are not necessarily the most effective mechanisms for negotiating this sort of long-term, very difficult change. And I have a quote here from a journalist and activist who's now an art student um, in Erbil. He was involved in trying to mobilize um, Barzan Hama. And he says, as you can see up here, if I look back, I wouldn't have done it if I would foreseen what would happen, the way people were beaten up and killed. And he says, and we were influenced by countries like Yemen, not exactly the right role models for us. Mm-hmm. Even Egypt, although it has its, hope it's from Yemen in here. Um, even Egypt, although it has its intellectuals, isn't the best model. He says we're more progressive and developed. Um, then he said, these people in office, they fought for the Kurdish cause and people care about them. It's not like Ben Ali in Tunisia or Mubarak. They fought <coughs> in the mountains and this matters people. And this is this comes up over and over again. Um, If we look at Libya and Gaddafi, it's not the same, and I thought this last part was really important. He said, if ordinary people get a hold of Mamdalal of Barzani, they wouldn't do to them what they did to Qaddafi. for instance. They care for them. They wouldn't kill them, even if there was a revolution. Um, At the same time, of course, even when stated movement goals are not immediately satisfied, they may have wide-reaching impacts, as I think the Suleimani Spring did. the activism and the mobilization of the Suleimania Spring constituted another step in the expansion of the political field under the KRG. It built new relationships and communities of dissent. It provided activists and authorities with valuable experiences um, and, and discussions. And it served as the most dramatic challenge to the prevailing national discourse ever in the history of the KRG. <coughs> Um, we can see KRG's officials to protect their turf here, and um, and really trying to resituate the idea of a Kurdish spring in this recent speech by an, um, our new prime minister or the new prime minister Nechirvan Barzani. And he says, as you can see here, recently some countries of the Middle East and North Africa have begun to see the emergence of democracy and justice. And then he says the Kurdistan region, wel- region welcomes these changes, supports any change that's in the direction of democracy, freedom, and human rights. And then he says, "By contrast, the Kurdish Spring began 20 years ago when the people of Kurdistan rose up um, with the support of the Kurdistan political parties and managed to end the authority of one of the most dangerous dictators of that time in our land, choosing to install the rule of law, democracy and freedom without the support of foreign countries. So this is a, an effort to resituate the idea of a Kurdish Spring within the historic Kurdish national struggle rather than allowing the idea of the protesters, um, the ideas of the protesters to become dominant. Um, so my final uh, thought here is that I think um, the study of, the, of dissent under the KRG is really fascinating for the ways it shows how ordinary people are trying to renegotiate the terms um, of an often hierarchical and clientelist state-society relationship in a state that's not fully independent. Um, so we see a kind of effort at post-nationalist politics um, that's not really post-nationalist, because we don't have an independent national state. So instead what's happening is activists are seeking to redefine what is understood by the national interest so that instead of conceptualizing the national interest as simply Kurdish independence vis-a-vis others, it incorporates or even prioritizes the question of how governance occurs under KRG rule. So this new Kurdish discourse insists that this matters as well, that the story isn't just about Kurds versus Arabs or Kurds versus Turks, but it's also very much about how Kurds govern themselves. And
0: I think I'll stop there. Excellent. Thank you very much. We've <laughs> got uh, three quarters of an hour for questions. Um, raise your hand, and, and I'll recognize you. If you can tell the audience who you are, and the word is question, not statement, and the word is one question, in each of the thoughts. I want to go first. Yes, you, sir. Yeah, my name is Stuart
2: from KRG. I uh, first I don't think you have any right to change but the His name to Azadi Square. It's Suleimani's heritage and Dani belongs to Suleimani from the first day he was exist. Like you can't just like from I don't know. I didn't change the name. The
1: protesters changed the name. Who? The protesters called it Azadi and I believe I didn't change
2: So your question, does she have the right to change what have got a better question? No, since in Shia, we have to try to influence us, as changing It belongs to the money. it's a heritage, and if you try to, you set they up, call them in, whether he's allowed to Azadi Square. So that's, that's it. Okay,
3: next question. You, yes, sir. Hi, I'm Michael Gutter. I enjoyed your talk, Nicole. Uh, I, I was in uh, Iraq at the same time as you were and uh, watching the events. And My question is um, about the future of the PUK. You're asking why we did not have uh, these demonstrations in our bill, and to what extent is it uh, to be at least in part explained by the fact that the PUK, who's traditional stronghold was in Solomonia, mm-hmm. is on the decline. And what actually even is the future of the P.U.K., right. especially when Mount Delal passes away, uh, which may be soon. Uh, whereas in Erbil, Barzani, I am told, that things well under control. Mm-hmm. And that explains why the demonstrations never moved to Erbil. So in Solomonia, the traditional uh, order was weakening under the UK. And whereas was in our bill, uh, the traditional order was still very strong.
4: Excellent. Third question before we go back to the speaker. Yes, sir. Uh, my name is mm-hmm. I'm a journalist. Uh, Thank you, Nicole. But I think you didn't focus enough uh, on the influence of Islamists on the protesters. I think one of the reasons that the protesters didn't succeed uh, where uh, these protests were hijacked by Islamists. Mm-hmm. Uh, ma- um, many of the main speakers of the uh, protesters were uh, highly uh, high profiles of uh, Islamist parties who had linked uh, with Al Qaeda even. Uh, for instance, one of them is called Soran Umar, uh, who had, uh, was former uh, aide of Mullah Krekar uh, who is under most imprisoned now in Norway, and now he's the advisor of Ali Baki, the head of uh, Islamic group, and another one was Mullah Kamran. So that's why many, uh, maybe at the beginning, many uh, seculars supported the protests, Uh, but. so at the beginning, it were a few thousands of people who were joining the protests. But three weeks after the beginning, the, the number decreased to a few hundreds. Well, I think so. We've, we've got three questions with the gentleman from the KRG
0: about, we'll, we'll come to you in a second. Round. The gentleman from the KRG about the, the naming of the square. Uh, we have Michael Gunter about maybe it's just the decline of the P.U.K. Um, compared to Barazani's group and KDP, and then he did the uh, the protest failed because they were hot license?
5: No, they're all really, really interesting questions. Sure, sure. Um,
1: to take your point in ter- and, uh, what was your name again? You No, I'm glad you raised it, actually, because actually the idea of this contestation over naming and the way you have a traditional space that has a lot of symbolic import, that you and you now see protesters coming in and renaming that and trying to reclaim that. That, it's that struggle going on that I find so important and so fascinating. I don't, if I go to Suleimani and I get on the bus, I'm not, you know, I, I use the normal name. But, um, but this is the name that the protesters were using and so this was, this was the name of their committee. But the point I think that's really important here is that you do see this struggle over the national memory and over how, how people should be remembered, over how events should be remembered, over what squares should be named, it, all of these things, um, it's incredible that it's happening. And actually, for me, this was something that was very clear as well, coming out of the, I've worked for many years on the Kurdish movement in Turkey, and you don't see this kind of internal discussion taking place within the Kurdish movement in Turkey in a public way, in the same way that you do in well, you can't Kurdistan.
2: You Turkey Kurdistan to Kurdistan. It's a different... Well,
1: they're different movements with different contexts, but in terms of... The, who is who is laying claim to who's who's writing these memories who's laying claim to particular national subjects how are people being represented those are all important discussions that you can see happening in movements or not and i think the fact that you have this struggle going on over who is going to dominate the narrative who can share the narrative whose perspectives can be held is so really important
2: system and majority wins the would be on that's who works everywhere else in Europe and America as well. Does anybody work in the system? I'll, I'll let you come back
0: but let's just not let this have a, a, a two-way conversation.
1: And again, I think the point oh, really is that there is this struggle for control going on and it's happening over in literature, it's happening in newspapers, it's happening in political parties in the political system, it's
2: happening on the yes, street.
3: Um, on
1: the future of the P-K, PUK, is it in decline? Absolutely, it's a really interesting question. Um, and then if you say, well, you have protests in Suleimania because the PUK is in decline, and you don't have them in Erbil or in Haller because um, Barzani has things well under control, then my question is why? So why do we see this transformation in Suleimania and uh, the decline in the PUK's ability to manage the political scene there? And this is one of the questions I was really exploring here, looking at the grievances against the PUK and the increased capacity to mobilize. I think it also goes back historically much further, and obviously you have, um, Barzani has different, historically had very different state society relations, working with tribes more in, in Hauler uh, and um than Barzani was, than Talabani was able to do. Um, but I don't think you can just say that because somebody is losing, a party is, is losing control, then you're automatically going to have sustained street street protests. It doesn't work quite that simply, but obviously that's a really important part of the picture here. (coughs) Um, And on the Islamists, it's a really interesting question. I did not observe that uh, when I was there in late March and early April, um, and I did not observe that Islamists were running the show or had hijacked the process. There were certainly more than a few hundred people there. Um, I know there were criticisms about Islamist involvement. There were real concerns, really from the outset, I think, over, for instance, the the use of the Friday prayers as, as part of the protest movement. Um, and there were a number of civic leaders who were not necessarily comfortable with it. Um, I think there was more of a, of a dialectic and of different groups vying for power and sometimes sharing and, and cooperating. Um, Ideas and resources, and other times in in competition. Um, I would have to continue. I mean, I'm. I, this is something I'm very much in the middle of, and I'll have to work more on it in terms of trying to figure out exactly how the dynamics worked with the 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 Islamist power relative to others. Um, but but
4: because there were some contradictions. Some people yeah. calling for freedom at the same time. These people are calling, you know, for anti-freedom. You know especially mullahs. At the Friday prayer, they uh, call for uh, interference in business in people's business, and at the same time, calling for freedom. So there was a huge contradiction between what they call and what they do at the mosques. I mean,
1: a lot of, uh, There are certainly a number of people, though, involved with um, the Kurdistan Islamic Union, the Kurdistan Islamic group, who would argue that they are they're <coughs> Democrats as well. I mean, this is, of course, the discussion that's going on in many different contexts right now. If we look at the participation of Islamic politi- parties in government, are they, are they sort of autocrats in disguise, talking and talk of democracy or not? To what degree are they social democrats and uh, Islamic activists at the same time? It, it, it really varies, obviously.
4: Can you call Islamists as democratic activists? Could possibly, but we'll save that for a minute. Got
0: another round of questions. Uh, I've got three here, and I'll, these two will be in there with the question on the floor. So you might want to go back. Uh, my name is
6: Estella. I'm, politi- I'm a political activist. Uh, I'm interested in the issue of the wider support of the Kurdish people from the different regions. Sorry, what uh, support for Kurdish people? I didn't hear the first. I'm, saying, I'm interested how the, this particular movement, you know, relates or has support from the Kurds in the different parts. After all, okay. we are talking about Kurds in, in Turkey, in Syria, in Iraq, in uh, Iran. Is there yet any sign that there is a relation between those in Soleimaniya and in other parts and what kind of exchange would there be, given the very different political developments and crises in the different other parts? Okay, that's one yeah. thing. Is there some relation with different parties, with organisations, grassroots or others? The second question, even more important. Uh, what is the... What... Are there any outside political forces, outside the region, meaning to say government in Turkey has particular interest, of course, what is going on in terms of development in Iraq Kurdistan, and so does have Syria, and so has uh, Iraq. So I wonder, was there anything that organizations involved in this, you know, were put under pressure. Was there anybody, you know, who might interfere politically, you know, with the different organizations, even NGOs? Mm, absolutely. What role do the American or European play in that? Because I know there's a lot of relationships going on and a lot of discussions okay. as to how
0: what will happen to this week <coughs> we've got those two questions thanks a lot the okay.
7: back thank you actually uh, I would like to thank you I very much enjoyed your analysis and I think it was quite in depth uh, in a sense that it was capturing the whole picture uh, what I thought uh, was kind of missing uh, was the two elements on the political level the lack of institutions are not on one such touch touched upon but the, how that would reflect in those in that movement in the uh, especially on those uh, square. And the other one was the, the historical background of the social-political movements of different parties that come into play in that square. And on the social level, I thought the tribal structure of the Kurdish region mm-hmm. was particularly important, the role of kinship and uh, family. Bones and uh, all these factors would come to play in different materials because the structure the tribal structure which very much implies that social and <laughs> political movements i just uh, was curious why did you mention that okay and finally this one yes, thank you
5: my name is castro from krg uk You provide many informations and my question i have two questions sorry first have you witnessed everything What you've said now what you've told us? Have you witnessed them all by yourself? Or you took information and asked people and got them from other people? This is the first question. Because you mentioned that <coughs> in some events or some days, there were like tens of thousands, like 30,000, 40,000, 50,000. Have you witnessed, have you seen 30, 40,000 by yourself? or oh, just by someone who told you that, oh, do you know, today in 15,000 people went out and reinstated. My second question is, <coughs> do you have any ideas of uh, the meeting between uh, His Excellency Mr. Barzani, the president of Kurdistan, with all the political parties, Kurdistan political parties, just a few days before he went to Europe to, to, to visit some European countries? And then just a few days after that meeting, where he asked the political parties to come and discuss the ways of how to do the reform in Kurdistan. And then he asked them to prepare and submit their projects and plans to how to do uh, reform in Kurdistan. And when he left, just a few days after after that, the demonstration started in, in Soleimaniya.
0: Thank you. Excellent, so you, you have seven questions. <laughs> seven questions. I apologise for that. Firstly, uh, possibly links between uh, Kurds and different straight across borders supporting the movement. Outside influence of states, Turkey, Syria, Iran, US and EU, uh, lack of institutions is that a kind of driver. The historical background of different movements in the square, the tribal background possibly of the demonstrations, then did you actually see these numbers yourself, the 20 to 40? Right. And then Masoud Barzani leaving the country after discussing reform, and I guess then the, the, uh, the, uh, the demonstrations after he was safely tucked away in Europe.
1: Okay, all very interesting questions, and uh, it's, it would also be nice to discuss the responses with you since I don't have answers to all of them. Um, and some of you may have insights here that I'd appreciate hearing about as well. In terms of uh, Kurds from this movement gaining support from others, I didn't see any connections or assistance from other Kurdish movements um, during the Sumamanya protests. And you had at the same time, around the same time, you had the so-called civil initiative taking place in places like Diyarbakir in southeastern Turkey. the differences were really striking in terms of the level of party involvement and um, elected officials involvement in the protests in in southeastern turkey so we saw people uh, elected officials for instance in suits sitting in chairs on the street with an umbrella there was these famous photos and they were very um, very different that way than, than the much more chaotic grassroots efforts that we saw on the street um, in places like <coughs> Sri I And mean, as some of you have worked on this, Professor Gunter, others, um, there's the relations between these different Kurdish, between the KRG and the, and the Kurdish movement in Turkey, between other Kurdish groups, they're not always easy, obviously. And um, there are histories of of a lot of competition and conflict between these organizations as well. So I didn't see any um, real external assistance that way. And obviously, um, the the relationship between these other Kurdish movements and the KRG is also very important for these movements. So then going and supporting dissidents against the KRG has its own risks. Um, I also didn't see extensive external uh, involvement in these particular protests. And it was one of the big uh, concerns and um, of the protesters. In fact, they felt that the, the American response was very, very muted, that there wasn't much attention from Europe. You know, they said, look, all these other countries are getting all the news coverage, and, and we're not getting very much. Um, so obviously, it's, again, one of these very complicated questions when you have, um, you have the KRG and, and allies trying to defend the KRG status within greater Iraq. And then when you have people coming up from below saying, well, hey, wait a minute. We don't like what's happening here. How do you manage these relationships? Um, Where I do and have seen a lot of influence is between these sort of nascent um, NGOs and federations of civil society organizations in the Suleimania area, in Halabja, for instance. There are extensive links between them and um, international uh, think tanks and and non-governmental organizations, um, democracy institutes, And there are close links um, between Goron and some of these um, international democracy NGOs as well. There's been a lot of funding of seminars on, for instance, uh, how uh, to do with elections and to do with um, democratization, to do with um, relations between security forces and the police and ordinary citizens, how to handle protests. So especially in the wake of the 2006 Halabja protests, there were a number of seminars that were funded um, from international donors. So you see that kind of influence, but when it comes to the level of the actual protests that were happening um, last spring, I didn't see much there. Which kind of takes me to the methodology question that was being posed over there. I spent um, several weeks in the region in, during the protests, obviously I wasn't there the whole time. I wasn't there in, in the square every day. Um, so I saw numbers that varied and as I said they varied from you know sometimes there might be a thousand people, sometimes there would be 10,000. And I'm very suspicious about numbers. That's why I said actually that you know I saw reports in some some statements that said there were 100,000 people there a couple of days, and I'm, I tend to be very suspicious of those sorts of numbers. So usually, if I'm you know if I'm writing a paper and I'm looking at numbers, then I'm trying to verify from as many different sources as I can. There's an art, as everybody knows, to counting crowds, and uh, I'm not trained in it. But uh, but I was there, so I a lot of what I'm writing about here I saw. Um, and then I came back afterwards as well and was interviewing different people. Um, I wasn't in Halair, for instance, during, I was in Sule and I was in Halaocha, but I wasn't in Hauler during the, the in, in February and March, and April. Um, so I saw some of it and then I, I talked to a lot of different people and then gathered, I mean, as usual, you gather sources from as many different places as you can. One thing I do want to say is this is a project that I've started and it's by no means complete and there's a lot of other people that I want to talk to and meet with and a lot of other uh, questions that I'd like to pursue, which perhaps uh, I get to some of your questions which are, I think, all really important. Um, The lack of institutions to really, um, uh, to perpetuate demands and to follow up is really important. And as I said, this is really something that I noted, um, the kind of fluidity of these associations (coughs) and the way you have certain groups that uh, have uh, more of a track record and and more of a sort of institutional history. Um, (coughs) They're important, but often you'll have a group that functions for three years and then folds. Especially if they are an opposition NGO, they're not receiving funding from the KRG, finding uh, money and know-how is difficult. Uh, and when you don't have this sort of dense institutional framework, not just for mobilizing people, but then for actually carrying through afterwards and for handling uh, all of the difficult after work, is, it's a real problem. Um, and actually, this is what I saw with Halabja, was you, you had this initial protest and the destruction of the monument, but then you had NGOs that came and actually picked up the protesters' demands perpetuated them and promoted them through the opposition media. And then they actually would call officials who had in, set, who had in fact said, yes, we're going to redress many of the, the problems know, all of the services that are missing in Halabja. Um, they had made a number of promises, officials had. And these lawyers um, and others began calling officials and basically harassing them and sort of had a checklist and said, okay, have you done it, have you done it? And it helped because they were there to follow through. Um, and this uh, also, I think, those these bridges with the other point you were making. I think um, when I talked to some of the protesters and the, the leaders of the protests about strategy, they didn't really have a strategy. And it's a huge problem. I mean, okay, it's one thing to mobilize people on the street, it can change the conversation, it, 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 it's important for a number of reasons, but if you don't have a strategy for translating, your, your power on the street into some sort of negotiation process, then where is it all gonna go? And when I said, what's your strategy? They said, well, we hope Paolo will rise, but then they didn't really have any strategy beyond that. And of course, there were all of these offers of conversations and of dialogue, but there's this huge tension, and this is a tension within Goron itself as well, between the, the old guard and the newer guard, and there are great fears among the younger generation of co optation and of being co-opted and of being lured into the system and then never getting anywhere and of losing your credibility on the street because of it. And yet if you if you don't work with the established parties and the established <coughs> politicians, how are you going to get anywhere? So it's kind of catch twenty two. And obviously those kinds of tensions are today continuing, I mean with with Goron, you know, sometimes boycotting, sometimes not, with the struggle within Goran itself. Um, so it's, I, I think that uh, um, it's it's a real it's a real problem. If you can get people on the street, but then you don't necessarily have the institutional mechanisms to translate that into something afterwards. It's not unique to the you know, to the Kurdistan Region, obviously. Either some of this is a to solve a problem in Egypt as well.
0: Um,
5: I think on in the timing of the demonstration. Yeah, I yeah, thought that Just, to just a clarification. I mean, you said there were lots of offers, But maybe some of the offers came after the demonstration started. Yes, but, but absolutely. But the event I mentioned was just before that, like one week or maybe 10 days before the demonstration, where, where Master Barzani, in a meeting with all the Kurdistan parties, asked them and, and told them that <coughs> I'm going for a visit to Europe. When I come back, i would like for all of us to come back together, to sit down together, and to discuss your projects, your plans for, for, for reform in Kurdistan. Yeah. And one of the things he mentioned after that, he said, I'm surprised why they didn't wait for me to come back, why they didn't submit their plans, their projects for the reform, why they, they ask people to come on the street before they come to submit their papers and their plans, <coughs> and we all sit down together and discuss it, and we have yeah. got that, do you
0: want to?
1: No, I, well, I, I mean, if I have the timing right here, um, partially I think what happened there is you had the the February 17th legal uh, protest that was planned that was, was in fact, not supposed to be a protest. It was supposed to be this this show of solidarity. And then the people who were there, uh, yes, they they said, okay, we have all of our, you know, we're in solidarity with Egypt and Tunisia, but then (coughs) they also used it as an opportunity to critique the KRG. And then you have the incident at the KDP headquarters and the killing of of the boy. And that sparked the street protests. So regardless of what had already been decided, it wasn't as if Goran then came to everybody and said, OK, we forget this process. We're not going to talk to um, our president or anybody else. We want you on the street. It didn't happen that way. In fact, one, not just one, several of the, the leaders of some of the different NGOs who ultimately became involved with the protests. They had said to me they didn't want that February 17th demonstration to go ahead because of how tense it already was because of what Goran, of Goran Seven Points. And they said, we didn't think there should be a, we we didn't support that February 17th demonstration because we suspected it was going to get out of hand and the timing was bad. And then it indeed was, you know, it did get out of hand and then you have people on the street so they decided, okay, we need to do something. So it's, I, I think one of the things you realize when you start researching movements is there's a lot of chaos. I mean, things don't happen in a neatly planned way. And there's a lot of different things happening at the same time. And so then trying to make some sort of order out of it is it's always challenging.
0: Well, thank you for your patience, Max, for you, certainly. Yeah. Uh, <coughs> thanks. Eli from DRC. Um, you mentioned at the uh, beginning of the talk that the uh, discourse that KRG has been employing instead of uh, past persecution uh, as a source of legitimacy, but um, I actually think that um, another source of legitimacy has been the uh, claims for democratic transition in the KRG since uh, 1991. And I, I I was wondering if it actually played any mobilizing role in the um, in, in the demonstrations. Because it does play a very important role um, for international NGOs when, when trying to
8: hold the Krajina accountable for its for its actions. Should I get the back? Yeah, mm-hmm. my name is Vladimir Wilkenberg. I did a similar research about the sort of spring in Kirkuk at uh-huh. the same period. Um, oh, interesting. Uh, but there it was very different because of there's more an ethnic element towards the <laughs> demonstrations. Um, I would like to make one comment: is that um, the PKK indeed commented on the demonstrations in Sulaymaniyah? Mm-hmm. Abdullah Ocalan said in a statement to his lawyers that he supports like sort of reforms in the Kurdistan region. And I also spoke with people, uh, a member of the PKK in Kandil, who also said like we support reforms, right. but they also try to stay neutral. But the the PKK party in Suleimania, while well, in Kurdistan region. Mm-hmm. It's called the PCD, PCDK. They did play a protest in the, they did play a role in the protest. Uh, Fayyid Gupi, for instance, was one of the spokespersons right. of the protest. And they did sort of support it. So <coughs> some like, way, there was some there was role of, like, sort of Turkish Kurds. But PKK mm-hmm. is, of mm-hmm. course, a very bigger, it's than just Turkish Kurds. They're everywhere in Kurdistan. So, mm-hmm. Um, the other, I actually wanted to ask you about the tensions between the opposition and the demonstrators, because in the beginning, uh, the opposition called uh, the people also troublemakers. And especially in the end, when the PUK crushed the demos- uh, demonstrations, basically by sending the Peshmerga forces and the security forces, there were also some uh, rumors that a lot of like uh, young people were like um, angry that the opposition parties didn't do enough for them. Yeah. Uh, and another question is, is like, how do you explain that uh, the Islamic uh, movements, actually in the Islamists or something you could say like that, could, could are able to mobilize in the whole in Erbil, but not? Um, I mean, the recent riots or demonstrations. Like, how could you explain that there's a sort of they could focus on like Islamic goals? There were some sort of riots or demonstrations, but. Not like in Suli, like there's a difference because recently there were some mobilizations of like Islamists in yeah, the local area, so maybe you know something about it. But <coughs> yeah. That's That's an interesting is information I'm from
9: Durham University. Uh, my question would be um, uh, after when you say uh, they did sort of renaming and um, uh, sort of renaming process for all new discourses that they use mm-hmm. and also demand of the good um, government practices. Um, all this um, is sort of uh, showing that they're to create uh, or constructed an alternative culture uh, mm-hmm. in terms of the uh, traditional so, uh, Kurdish social um, structure. Um, I was wondering, are they really created this sort of alternative culture uh, against this uh, strong uh, religious and tribal structure of Kurdish uh, society, which uh, provide them um, are they really yet constant of the uh, society? Um, apart from this, um, I'm not really sure. Did you really mention? Are they really also covering all demands of the society? Uh, are actually they are they are really um, operating as an intellectual or moral agents? If you if you think about um, different sorts of minorities. Uh, in terms of the religious or sexuality and so on.
0: And finally, if you want.
4: Um, hey, Nicole. Um, we have a question from Twitter um, from uh, Mohammed Idris. Oh he wants to know what your view is on the KRG government, the new KRG government, with respect to reforms, and how do you evaluate relations between the government and Goran? Yeah.
0: OK. Go your question, including ring uh, ringer from Twitter, but I'm not sure I'll have it. But you can <laughs>
1: All right, well maybe we can link some of these questions together. Um, the first question you raised about um, uh, the narrative of democracy and uh, absolutely, I'd say absolutely the KRG's legitimacy rides not just on nationalist credentials but also on, of course, many other things, including uh, and especially perhaps the idea that Kurdistan is being constructed as a kind of democratic beacon in the region and there's been a very, very um, strong representation of Kurdistan as a kind of hope and a model and and as being substantially more democratic than the rest of Iraq and and as well as much more stable and obviously some of this is is true and um, it is in fact more democratic than many other places um, and it's how you want to measure democracy. Um, but it's also, of course, very much posed challenges for the KRG because it's very vulnerable, especially because it's a quasi-state, especially because of the level of support it's received from NGOs and um, intergovernmental organizations based on the idea that it is indeed a democracy or becoming a democracy. Any sort of contradiction between word and deed here can pose a problems. And, and I think this is one of the reasons why you see a, a willingness to, um, to negotiate and to talk to demonstrators and to try and deal with these grievances um, in through mechanisms other than just you know, shooting people. Because uh, you know, KRG authorities are very sensitive to international opinion. They're not an independent state. They're, they're not a fully sovereign state. They can't just ignore the rest of the world. Um, and uh, so there are. This is again. This was something that I saw with Halabja. Was there had been you know, Halabja was was kind of set up as the quintessential um, example of Kurdish suffering, and uh, a lot of money had been donated to Halabja, and local people and people there felt on the ground that they didn't see it, that it wasn't. You, know, you didn't have paved roads, and and you know they were frustrated, and there was this glaring contradiction for them between this discourse of of look how much Halabja has suffered and look how democratic we are versus what they were experiencing on the ground. Um, so I think that that, that very much um, plays into this in a place like Suleimania. And, it, and it, you know, in that way it's hopeful, I think, because, um, because you do have a government here that uh, is very cognizant of the need to tread lightly and of the need to deal seriously with, with, you know, with the question of reforms. But it has made it very vulnerable. It's made it vulnerable that way, absolutely. Um, yes, uh, there has been a lot of tension. I remember who asked somebody about uh, between the opposition parties and the demonstrators. Um, uh, most students that I, you know, most of the people that I, I had talked to who were involved with um, the movement, especially students had been active in Goran at one point or another, especially in the 2009 election campaigns, and by 2000, late 2011, they were, in many cases, very frustrated and very angry, angry with Goran. And um, again, I think this gets to this question of, of the perception of, of co-optation, and, um, and of Goran selling out, and of certain Again, there's this struggle within Goran between this older guard that came from the PUK and a newer generation of people who didn't have experience within the PUK and it's very tense and, and it continues to be tar- very tense. And a lot of demonstrators uh, felt very betrayed, I think. Um, trying to think of what else we have here. Uh, in terms of, I, I I would love to actually hear more about what was happening in Kirkuk because I don't know much at all about this in in terms of what you found with your research, and I know. i am love to ask questions back again, but we'll but I'd love to hear five minutes. Uh, we'll I only Yeah,
0: I was trying culture. to understand. <laughs> I thought it was an
1: interesting question, I wasn't sure I completely understood it. Um, um uh,
0: what so I'm you trying s- to say
9: actually, are they really gain the consent of the society? Because if you think, you know, are yeah. they or really? Or is it just a sort
1: of intellectual elite? Is yeah. your question? As a moral
9: agent or intellectual leadership, if you like. Yeah. Because if you think about you know, the, what they cover, uh, I'm sure they're not covering all demand um, of the society, uh, because there's a lot of different minorities, different views, uh, different and, views yeah. and so on. So I'm really not really yeah. clear about if are they really completely leading as a counter movement, if you like to say, against the special uh, dominant culture, mm, the really, Kurdish yeah, culture. Interesting yeah. question. Yeah.
1: I think they're one opposition movement and one alternative culture, or they're offering one kind of new definition of, of Kurdish nation and Kurdish national interest. Um, I don't think it's just a kind of intellectual elite in Sulaimani. If you look at the protests in Sule and in other places, um, even if you look at Rania, you may see elites, but they're not necessarily intellectual elites. Uh, So the opposition movement that we could see as, say, centered in Sulaymaniyah consists of many different groups of people, um, many of them poor people, uh, many of them not involved with civil society organizations. But at the same time, um, I think it's absolutely correct to say they're not, you you can't just divide Kurdistan into sort of the established powers and the opposition. It's much messier and more complicated than that. And of course, especially as soon as you get into other places, such as Kirkuk or Dohuk, where you have um, different religious and ethnic minorities, um, you have alternative visions as well, uh, other kinds of visions of how different communities of people should be living together in the region. Um, what so exactly? It's not, sorry. What exactly the
9: yeah. position of, for example, the Yazidis or Algidhi movements on in this new um, type of the Kurdish nation or Kurdishness?
1: I haven't seen evidence that they are
0: guarded. we have five minutes left and our friend from the KRG wants to ask another question i want to actually ask a question as well i think this year from the baghdad budget from the very uh, national iraqi budget the KRG gets 10 billion if i'm not right dollars so you can actually see the KRG almost like a a rentier statelet statement getting Mm non-tax revenues uh, to a bill without having to do much for them if that's the case then the the demonstrations how would we explain, in a, in a kind of political economy uh, dynamic, the demonstrations in Soleimania? Is the diffusion of rents or revenue less in Soleimania compared to a bill? That's my question. Uh, but hold on to that. And you have a question,
2: sir. And you at the back. Yeah. Um, well, remember, we've only got a couple of minutes left. Yeah, so I don't think it's right to, to compare mm-hmm. what happened in Soleimania to an the screen for one reason. Because what happened in those countries was against the democratic system. And in Kurdistan, Soleimani was for reform and better public service. And you mentioned earlier uh, in other cities they can't do demonstration. Ten days ago in Holy was a protest. And in Zapor, a couple of months ago, and government met their demands. I don't know if you are of or not. So people all about Kurdistan, the they're to protest, raise uh, their voice. It's not. And what happened in Suleimani, he said there was no strategy. Don't you think was some sort of hand behind this from okay. jeopardized security?
0: That's two questions,
2: I think. Yeah, yeah, the security uh, situation in Kurdistan of But there's a gentleman behind you, which I apologize for forgetting, so.
4: Well, sorry. Last sorry. Uh, Jofili, Northwestern University. Um, thank you so much for highlighting the, 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 the role media play, uh, particularly Kurdish media, uh, in terms of uh, both Uh, mainstream, and and, uh, traditional, and and alternative media. But what about the role of of Iraqi non-Kurdish media um, in in, in their coverage of of the story? Uh, And also, the role of of, um, other news channels from the regions, the the same ones that championed uh, uh, Egypt and obscured uh, Bahrain. Uh, What kind of role did they play? So those three
0: questions, all in three minutes. in three minutes.
1: Uh, I guess just the first thing to say is I, I, there are certainly demonstrations that take place around the Kurdistan region all the time for different reasons. Um, Sometimes they're service related, sometimes they're reform related. Um, There were demonstrations in Heller uh, last spring as well, but the difference was you didn't see a sustained daily mass set of demonstrations so you know it was you would see a demonstration for an afternoon sometimes it would be broken up sometimes not but you didn't see the kind of mass campaign that we saw in Suleimania. so i just think that's one important distinction to make you'll have protest uh, actions that happen but that's a different thing than having a movement that lasts for several months um on the diffusion of rents i don't i don't know the numbers but i know that people in uh, there's definitely this perception in Suleimania that the money that is coming there is not being effectively used. Um, and uh, I, I think that, that there has been some improvement there actually over the last year. And that's one thing you can see is that there, there are the protests, these these claims in, are made, these these demands for changes, and, there, and then a year and a half later, there are in fact improvements. So there is a kind of responsiveness here that we don't necessarily see in other systems. It's a flexible system that way, and again, I think uh, when you have a more personalistic system that way, that can also work to your advantage,
0: sometimes. Oh, oh, it's of
1: non christian media. Uh, uh, There were obviously a lot of different media reports, some of them uh, in different languages, some of them uh, with the party and the state-controlled media, some of them with opposition media. And, uh, and obviously, that fueled uh, mobilization in some cases and created a lot of tension and, and anger in others, depending on uh, who was being supported and which narrative was being put out there.
0: Right. Thank you. Uh, on my way in today, my boss for the evening, least Robert O, said we don't do much on Iraq and Kurdistan. I think it, it speaks to, the, I think, the quality uh, and some of the intensity of the debate. And I think the exits of Nicole's uh, talk that uh, we should do more on Kurdistan is, is on Iraq and Kurdistan, is this is a response. So I think we need to thank our speaker very much for, I think, a very detailed, excellent speech. And thank the audience for the debate that followed afterwards.